Thank you, Maggie. Good morning, Orangewood. Though we can't be together physically, we can be together digitally. But even better, because of the Holy Spirit working in all of us, we can actually be unified this morning um, together as we worship and as we study God's word together. If you would, pray with me. Father God, thank you for your timeless word that is absolutely true. Use it this morning to transform us into resilient disciples of Jesus. Meet us, Lord, and draw us close to you, enabling us to know your love, grace, and truth. Father, please transform us from the inside out and change us for the better. Be pleased to use this morning even me, a broken vessel, redeemed by your grace, to communicate your truth that has the power to transform. Be glorified in and through us this morning. Father, we need you, and we thank you in advance for what you will do even this morning. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, I have the privilege of starting a brand new sermon series on the life of Daniel. Why Daniel, you ask? Well, because we're living in a time when if you are seeking to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you may feel more and more like a stranger in a strange land. These days, with things changing so fast, it can feel like even though we're at home, that we're exiles in a strange land. So, I want to talk a little bit about some statistics. Recent studies have shown that many of our youth who've grown up in the church, particularly the millennials, ages 18 to 29 now, hey millennials, you're getting older, the Zoomers are coming fast, these millennials, many of them have left or are in the process of leaving our churches. Why? Because they feel as though they don't have a safe place to process through all the rapid change that's going on in and around them. Many of their boomer parents, like me, find that our own heads are spinning with all of the rapid change going on. I'm having a hard time relating to the change. So communicating that and opening up doors of communication with my millennial daughters is difficult in my own right. But in addition to that, many churches apparently are not openly addressing the hard issues that our young people are facing on a daily basis. In one recent study, it suggested that up to 64% of millennials that grew up in the church as children have either left the church or they're on their way out. 
However, there is some good news. In a study that the Barna Group did, and the findings of that study, uh, my book is over there, uh, the findings of that study being put in a book written by David Kinneman and uh, Mark Matlock, the book is called Faith for Exiles. They did a study of, millenni of millennials in America, and they discovered that the millennials that attended church as children, only 10% of them today are walking faithfully with Jesus. Now, I did tell you that there was some good news. Well, the good news is that 10% of our millennials still identify as resilient disciples of Jesus. God has always had a remnant in his people, a remnant that remain faithful and true to him, that follow him through thick and thin. Well, there is a remnant amongst this generation, the millennial generation, and that remnant is strong, vibrant, and they are seeking Jesus in the midst of our current culture. So here is something that is interesting. What do we do as a church to address these problems? Well, what we can do, what we need to do, obviously, is go to God with this need. And what we find in God's word are many exiles, many in God's story that found themselves as exiles, dislocated from their home culture and transplanted in a foreign culture. One of these historical figures that powerfully exemplifies and teaches us what a resilient disciple is, is that of Daniel. So, let's jump in. We're going to look at Daniel 1 this morning, and we're going to look at it in sections, and we'll, we'll look at a passage, and then I'll discuss it, then we'll look at the next passage, and hopefully work through the entire chapter. So, so let's look at Daniel 1, 1 through 2. In the third reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasure of his God. So what's the context of this beginning of Daniel chapter 1? The nation of Israel became split after Solomon's reign. It was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Each kingdom had its own kings. The north had kings that consistently disobeyed God. The southern kingdom had evil kings and some good kings that actually brought about revival, like Josiah, the young boy king, who brought the word of God back into the kingdom. But in the end, God's chosen people, both in the north and the south, ultimately rejected God's ways. They broke the covenant that God's people had made through Moses. They rebelled against God's authority, and they even began to worship the false idols of their neighbor. God sent prophets to those nations, encouraging them to repent and turn back to God. But the people and the leadership consistently rejected that warning. So God allowed 
and enabled foreign powers to bring his judgment upon his people. The northern kingdom in 722 BC was overtaken by the nation of Assyria. And then in 609 BC, the southern kingdom began to be overtaken by a new world power in Babylon. The leader of the army was Nebuchadnezzar. His father happened to be king during this first attack in Jerusalem. But his father suddenly grew ill and died. Nebuchadnezzar left the battlefield and took his army back to Babylon. They would come back to attack Jerusalem on two more occasions. And in 587 BC, the final attack of Jerusalem occurred and the city was burned. And the Temple of Solomon, built in 1000 BC, was destroyed. So during that first attack in 609, one of the things Nebuchadnezzar did was he took a group of youth, a group of leadership from the nation of Judah in Israel, and he took them back as exiles to Babylon. In that group was Daniel and his three friends that we'll learn about in chapter one. So let me point out something about these two verses. This is interesting. The first verse and the second verse of Daniel 1 each represent a different perspective. Verse 1 is the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Judah from a secular point of view. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's a secular historical view of the attack. But verse 2 speaks of the very same event from a very different perspective. Verse 2 says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So what's interesting about this is these two verses have one and the same author, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Jerusalem. That's one way of looking about it. But the other way is that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Daniel had a biblical perspective on what was going on around him. There's only one way that Daniel could have that biblical perspective, and that was if it had been spiritually discerned, which points to the fact that Daniel himself had a personal relationship with the living God. Daniel and God, Daniel and God communicated with one another. They communed. God spoke to him, and Daniel listened and responded. So Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, and what does he do? He displays power, but he also displays ownership. Not only ownership over the people, but ownership over the God of Judah. How does he display that? By entering the temple and by taking some of the vessels from that temple back and putting them in the temple of his God, which was a display of victory. Nebuchadnezzar believed that his gods defeated the God of the Hebrews in Judah. So this was not only a geopolitical war, it was also a spiritual war. So I want to show you just a couple images to give you an idea of what Babylon looked like. The first slide is an image of Babylon City, and this is a picture 
of the Ishtar Gate. This is in the northern, uh, the northern side of the great city of Babylon. It's blue. It's amazing. The walls were like 320 feet high and 85 feet thick around the city. There was a moat around the city. This city was the largest city in the known world at this time. You can see in this picture, directly behind the Ishtar Gate, you'll see a group of buildings to the right. Those are the palaces of Nebuchadnezzar. And then off in the distance, you, you see a, a tall structure. That is a ziggurat. That structure was uh, atop of that structure, on top of that structure, was an edifice honoring Marduk, the chief deity of Babylon. Now, let's look at the next slide. It is a closer view of what that ziggurat looked like with the edifice on top, honoring the local deity Marduk, who later became known, as Maggie told us, as Bel, which was um, interpreted as the word Lord. So they called Marduk their Lord. So, this is the city Daniel and his fellow exiles are brought to. I want to point out that Daniel was the ripe old age of 17 when he was exiled to Babylon. So let's look at Daniel 1 verses 3 through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, let me point out just a couple things. Consider the qualifications of Daniel and his friends. Youths without blemish of good appearance. And this might seem kind of strange at first. You're going, why does Nebuchadnezzar want to surround himself with attractive male models, attractive young people? What's up with that? Well, the key is in that phrase, youths without blemish. These youths that Nebuchadnezzar had brought back to Babylon were considered live offerings to his God. It was customary in the pagan temples of that day that if you offered animals to your deity, that that animal would be without blemish. And so what we see, just as in God's sacrificial system, he also required animals without blemish. So these youths, they weren't simply captives. These were live offerings to the gods of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was looking to strip Judah of its bright, brightest and its best. He took the young influencers of the culture in Judah away and brought them to Babylon. So his attack not only geopolitical, but also spiritual in nature. And then he began his strategy, this strategy to 
defeat the people of Judah, but then to break them and bend them to his will, the will of his gods. So he brought them to Babylon. And I want to show you the four-step approach that Nebuchadnezzar used. And I call this the four-step approach to coercive assimilation, because that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He is seeking to strip out of these young Hebrew youths their faith and their culture so that he can replace that with the culture, the religion, the education of the Chaldeans of Babylon. So look at this four-step process. First, number one, isolation. What does he do? He captures them and removes them from their home from their childhood home, from their culture, from everything familiar, from their God-centered worship culture in Jerusalem. He removes them from that and brings them to Babylon. Then he begins a three-year indoctrination process where he is attempting literally to re-educate them, uneducate them of what they've known, re-educate them of what he wants them to know. And then thirdly, he uses intimidation to encourage them to release uh, their old ways, their old God. Why should they keep on holding on to their old ways and even their old God? Because Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and overtook the temple of their God in Jerusalem. He used intimidation by displaying to them and this is, this is really shrewd of Nebuchadnezzar. But he brings them to the biggest city in the world. I don't know if you've ever taken a trip or if you can remember the first time you left home and visited Times Square. But when you visit Manhattan for the first time, there is an intimidation factor that takes over. You are in such awe of the buildings, of the cultures, of the cultural offerings, of the lights and the glitz of just the sheer size of the place. It is intimidating. So Nebuchadnezzar uses the intimidation of his power, of his prestige, of the beauty of his city, in its architecture, in its size. He uses all of that. Isolation, indoctrination, intimidation. And then lastly, he uses re-identification. Look at Daniel 1, verses 6 through 7. Among these, among the exiles, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar went so far as to Remove the most personal thing about Daniel and his friends. He replaced their family names. And you need to understand that in the Jewish culture, a family name meant something very significant. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah meant beloved to the Lord. Mishael meant who is as God. And Azariah meaning the Lord is my help. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had these names removed. 
Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, meant Bell's prince. Do you see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing? He is trying to fully assimilate these Hebrew youths into the Babylon way of thinking, of living, even of eating. So, the next slide, verse 7. Daniel, this, this verse, verse 8, this is the hinge pin of the entire chapter. On this verse hinges the story. And in fact, verse 8 has the key word, the key uh, attribute, if you will, of the main character of the book of Daniel. Can you catch it? So let me read it. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This is the key concept in chapter one. And the key word is resolve. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself before his God, even though he was being assimilated into Babylon that had many gods. So let's look at this just for a minute. The root word, the Hebrew word that is translated resolve is the word sum. It comes from the root meaning to put, to place, to set. And when this verb is used of man, it speaks of determination, resolve in the English standard version. When it is used of God, like in the book of Genesis, when God is said to put Adam and Eve in the garden, it has the weight of sovereignty and divine purpose. When God wills something, it happens. When God puts, it is set. And what we see Daniel do in verse 8 is to resolve in his heart to choose before God not to defile himself. This is a subtle way that Daniel in this situation is protesting the assimilation process that he is savvy to. So, Daniel makes up his mind. He sets his intention in verse 8, not to defile himself. And why would eating the food of Babylon be a defiling act? Because Daniel lived under the Mosaic Code, and there were certain foods he had covenanted with his God not to eat. And apparently there were foods, there was meat in this menu that Daniel refused to eat. And he also refused to drink wine. And so why the wine? Because wine certainly can be kosher. Well, in this culture, the food that the king ate was likely offered first to the gods of Babylon before the king ate it. And Daniel refused to defile himself before his God by eating food offered, sacrificed first to a false God. So, 
I want to show you three verses out of the New Testament that talk about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. And where does that transformation happen? It happens in our mind and in our hearts. It is a choice. It is a decision. It is a decision to resolve, to determine in advance what you will do and what you won't do. So let's look at this first verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed, Paul tells the Christians in Rome. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's look at another verse. This is Peter, the apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15, Peter says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then lastly, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we have an example here in Daniel, a young man who chose, who resolved, who determined in his heart and mind not to defile himself, to honor God, the living God. So I want to show you something in, verse, in verses 9 through 13. Let's look at that. So what happens after Daniel resolves? I want you to see how God responds to Daniel's resolve to refuse to conform to the ways of Babylon. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink for why should he see? <clears throat> I'm sorry. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your age? So you would endanger my head with the king? <laughs> then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So what does God do? God gives Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief eunuch. God rewards Daniel's commitment to not defile himself and gives him favor in the eyes of the chief eunuch. Interesting here, I want you to note that Daniel's plan is interestingly considerate of the chief eunuch. Why is Daniel being thoughtful towards this enemy of Judah, towards this chief eunuch. 
Daniel takes his cues from a God whom he relates lovingly to others. He seems to understand that his great God is in control of his circumstances and he is trusting that God will lead him through this ordeal even as he himself seeks to honor God through it all. Jeremiah is a prophet of God who did not get taken to Babylon during the first wave of exiles. And Jeremiah is writing to the people of Judah back home. And he instructs the exiles. He writes a letter and sends, an exile, sends a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And he says this. He encourages them to seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Because as the city goes, so you go. So Daniel is seeking the welfare of the Babylonians that he has relationships with. He is responding to them with compassion and love, just the way, just as God is responding to Daniel and giving Daniel favor and compassion through the eyes of the chief eunuch. So let's look at verses 14 through 17. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were to drink the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So here we see it again. We see that as Daniel and his friends honor God and refuse to be conformed by the ways of the king and the ways of a godless nation, God honors them. He honors them first with favor in the eyes of the chief eunuch, but now he honors them all the more. And he gives, gives them the ability to learn and to become skilled in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel is given a special ability to understand all visions and dreams. You will hear more about that in chapter 2. So, let's move on to verse 18. At the end of the time... When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief, and the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. A couple things I want to point out here in this passage. First, I want to remind you that Daniel is the author of these verses. And I just want to point out to you the names Daniel chooses to use as he writes this story. Yes, they've been renamed by Nebuchadnezzar and given names associated with Babylonian gods. But when Daniel writes of himself and his friends, he uses the names of their youth, 
the names that connect them to Yahweh. And that's noteworthy. The second thing is to understand that God blessed these four above and beyond others to such a degree that Nebuchadnezzar found them to be 10 times more wise, 10 times more intelligent. Realize this didn't just come because they were eating vegetables. The fact that they chose to eat vegetables and water, that's not a statement about veganism. It's a statement about honoring God, honoring God with their bodies, understanding that they were God's possession and that they were honoring a covenant relationship with God every single day of their lives. But God honored that. He honored their devotion to him. He honored their resolve to honor him. And he gave them this supernatural ability, supernatural wisdom and knowledge. And that's amazing. So that brings us to the last verse. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This chapter begins with young Daniel being taken from Jerusalem and the last verse ends with Daniel being in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know how many years that was? Seventy. Seventy years. Daniel faithfully followed his God Yahweh for 70 years in a strange and foreign land. And you'll learn in the later chapters that Daniel basically becomes the prince of all the magicians, of all the wise men in Babylon during four reigns of kings. Four different kings have Daniel in their court. What does that tell you? That tells you that Daniel became a man of great influence. Daniel influenced four kingdoms. That's amazing. Why? Because he committed himself to Yahweh. And in so doing, God blessed him. But the main quality I want you to see in this chapter that Daniel reflected and reflects to us is this. Daniel had an intimate relationship with God. Daniel walked, as it were, with God. You'll find in the remaining chapters of our sermon series that Daniel is a man of purpose and a man of prayer and a man of prophecy. But in this chapter, we see Daniel, he has a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with God. And I want to point out something that Nebuchadnezzar uh, did not understand, that the God of the Hebrews was no ordinary local God. This was a God that came along with the exiles. This was a God who was omnipresent in all of creation. And you can take a Hebrew out of Jerusalem, but the God of the universe is the God of Babylon, ultimately. And Daniel, he related with his God during his 70 years in a pagan nation. And that relationship, that personal 
relating with God. That makes all the difference. And that is actually one of the five attributes in the book, Faith for Exiles. It's the first one. The common attribute among the 10% of millennials that are resilient disciples and faithful followers of Jesus today, the first quality that they all have in the survey across socioeconomic boundaries, racial boundaries, the first quality that the millennials have that helps them to be resilient disciples is this. They have a personal connection with God himself through Christ. They relate to God daily. They hear from God when they read his word and when they meditate on it and when they pray and they listen. That is a quality Daniel had. God had a relationship with Daniel that was at the heart level. So where did Daniel get the ability to resolve not to defile himself? That strength came from God himself. But it was because Daniel had entered in, had yielded, yielded himself, and he called God his God, his master, his king, his Lord. One last thing I want to point out before we go to the four vital signs of a resilient disciple, and that's this, that when Jesus was born, we know in the story, there were magi that came from the east. <laughs> These magis came from the land to the east of Jerusalem, and they were looking for a Messiah, and they knew that a Messiah was coming. And it's interesting to note that Daniel's 70 years of influence over the Magi in Babylon resulted in disciples, likely disciples of Yahweh, men that were seeking the Messiah hundreds of years later when Jesus was born. That is powerful. So let's wrap up. Four vital signs. I've been talking about them all along. We won't have to spend much time there. But let's look. Number one, what are the vital signs of a resilient disciple? One, get perspective. Ask for Christ's perspective on you, on your world, on the word, on God himself. Get perspective. Daniel had God's perspective on the world around him. We, through a relationship with Christ and the indwelled Holy Spirit, we can see things through God's eyes as God gives us eyes to see what he's doing in us, through us, through the church, in this world. Get perspective. Number two, purpose. Purpose to honor God. Purpose. Resolve in your heart to put God first in everything, in every area, even if it means taking risks, release control. Trust God in the areas of your greatest fears. And give him all the glory along the way. Three, practice love and mercy. God is a loving, merciful, and gracious God. And we see Daniel being kind, considerate, compassionate, even towards his captors. He is reflecting sacrificial love, the love of God that he receives. He then can emulate and display to others. Show, he show kindness. We should show kindness to our enemies. We should show kindness to the poor. 
And then fourthly, prize. We should find great prize in Jesus. Find your prize in Jesus and Jesus will bless you in ways unexpected. For the joy coming, it says, Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. For the joy set before him, he humbled himself and emptied himself and gave himself up on the cross. Well, brother and sister, we have a prize in the coming kingdom. We have the prize of sanctification and being glorified and being made to be like Jesus. It's coming. So these four vital signs to become a resilient disciple, get perspective, purpose to honor God, practice love and mercy, and find your prize in Jesus. Pray with me. Father God, Father God, grant us courage. Grant us courage like Daniel, but we know that his courage came from you. So Father God, grant us courage to do what you have given us to do this day, this week, to say what you've given us to say and to become who you have called us to become. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.